How's everybody doing today? Well, good morning, and again, once again, welcome to the Christian Life Center. We're so glad that you're here. Um, as Christian just said, we are in week three of our series that we are calling Road Trip. Um, and does anybody want to guess at the book of the Bible that we'll actually be in today? Anybody have any thoughts on that? We've been there for a little while. Uh, if you are new and you don't understand why I'm asking that, we have been in the book of Luke for a, a little bit more than a year and a half, so um, probably even more than that. That's, it's just been a year and a half since I've actually counted or paid attention. Um, so we've been working through this gospel of Luke. Um, we started in chapter 1 way, way long ago, and we have made our way all the way to chapter 18, and we're going to continue through it. But basically, as we're in this sub-series, what we're doing is just kind of looking at Jesus' teaching. We've called it uh, Road Trip because what Jesus has been doing since about chapter 9, he has been traveling to different towns, to different um, areas, different places where he is just ministering the gospel of Jesus Christ. He's been teaching, he's been healing, he's been kind of in this place where there's some opposition with the Pharisees and the religious elite, and, and Jesus is literally doing that. He's kind of taking his time on this road trip, which ultimately leads him to Jerusalem. And in Jerusalem is the reason and the purpose of why he came on this earth. And that's ultimately to die on a cross, to suffer one of the worst deaths imaginable so that it could take our place and that we could be right standing with God. So we are kind of in the tail end of this road trip series, or actually I should say we're in the beginning of the road trip uh, series, but towards the tail end of his ministry here, as in just a few weeks, we're going to be kind of actually entering into the city of Jerusalem and we're going to actually be at uh, Passion Week. So I'm excited to share with you today as we're, we're jumping into this. Like I said, all the way back in chapter 9, Jesus said that he set his face towards Jerusalem and he started to make his way there. And what we've been seeing, specifically even last week, what we've been seeing is that there's kind of a, a mold that everybody has this idea or these thoughts of what the Messiah, what Jesus would actually look like, right? Like they all have this kind of pre-planned idea, this thought process of going, when Jesus shows up or this Messiah shows up, he's going to do and say this. He's going to come in and he's going to conquer Rome and he's going to come in and he's going to establish the Jews above every other nation. And he's going to come in and do this. And what we're seeing is that the mold of what people thought Jesus would be and then who Jesus actually was, the promised Messiah, were two completely different things, right? Like even last week, if you were here with us or if you go back and listen to the message, there was a mold that the disciples even have of Jesus. Their expectation and their desire was different than what Jesus was actually doing because last week, Jesus tells them plainly that he is going to go to Jerusalem and suffer and die, and it was hidden from them. Like, if you have children, maybe that's like the conversation that you have. You're like, hey, this is what's going to happen. And they're like, uh-huh. And you're like, do you understand? And they go, uh-uh. That's exactly what is happening with the disciples. Jesus is explaining his purpose and his mission and what's about to happen. That everything that the, the, the uh, prophets had talked about in years past, in, in uh, hundreds of years, is about to come to fruition, but they just don't quite get it. And so we're going to continue on with this road trip. And before we do that, I do want to just take, uh, take a little bit of time to, to open up in prayer. So if you're with me, if you could just bow your head, close your eyes, we're just going to take some time. So Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for this day. Lord, I, I thank you that we get this opportunity to just come before you and, and to open up your word and to be able to hear what you would have us hear. 
Lord, I pray that today that my words would not be my own. Lord, that as each, each person is here, Lord, whether they're in the parking lot, whether they're online, whether they're watching this later, whether they're here in person, Lord, I pray that it wouldn't be my words that are heard, but yours. Father, I pray that you would speak to us, allow us to know what you are calling us to do, allow us to know how you desire us to follow you. Lord, I pray that we wouldn't be like the disciples and the Pharisees and the religious elite, Lord. I pray that we would not have a certain mold that we try and make you fit into, but Lord, we would model our lives after your life, that we would do what you've called us to do, and that we would be faithful in everything that you call us to do. Lord, we thank you for this day. We thank you for this time. I thank you for this opportunity. In Jesus' name, amen. So like I said, we are kind of towards the tail end of Jesus's road trip here. So he is uh, at actually Jericho today. As we talk about this, he's passing through Jericho. And Jericho would have been one of the last cities or the last stops before finally making it to Jerusalem. Jericho was about 18 miles, so it's probably about a day's walk, um, uh, probably a pretty full day, but a day's walk from Jericho to Jerusalem. And Jesus is making his way through there. And so Jericho is uh, kind of the city that we all knew if we went to uh, children's church, and that was the city that the Israelites defeated by walking around it. Like six days, they did one lap around the city. On the seventh day, they did seven laps, and the walls came down, and they, like, God did this great victory. But Jericho had been rebuilt by Herod, and he rebuilt it about a mile from where the previous old town, the old Jericho, was. So it's about a mile away, so there's two actual cities, which will be become important in just a little bit. But Jesus's ministry is in full swing, meaning that he has got a, a lot of popularity. There's a lot of attention because of the miracles and the miraculous things that people have seen. What God has been doing has been slowly revealing his kingdom and the teaching that is opening up the eyes of those that were far from God now having the opportunity to come to God. Jesus came specifically, and Luke talks about this a lot, that Jesus came and he showed love and care and compassion to the outcasts of society. Those that society had disregarded, and we're going to even see that today, those that society had disregarded, those that the, the religious elite said were, were nobodies and not valuable, Jesus was actually bringing value and significance to he was showing and building that his kingdom was not like the mold that everybody thought was, was going to be how the Messiah would come. He was coming for something different. And so Jesus' ministry is in full swing, traveling to Jerusalem in preparation for Passover. So uh, not going to spend a ton of time on this, but basically Passover in Jerusalem, it was something that was celebrated every single year. And people would journey to Jerusalem because there was a specific sacrifice of a lamb that they were to present at the temple. The temple being in Jerusalem, it would be a pilgrimage that they would take every single year, and they would celebrate Passover. And what Passover was, was as Jesus was bringing his people, the nation of Israel, out of Egypt, out of slavery, there was 10 specific plagues that, that Jesus or God had sent to Pharaoh in order to get Pharaoh to release God's people, to release them into what would be the promised land that would, would continue on to where we see with Jesus. And so basically, this time of Passover was to remember the 10th and the final plague. And the 10th and the final plague was the most devastating of all of them, where where the death angel would actually pass over each every single house and those that were covered by the blood of the lamb, meaning that those that were Israelites and believed in God and did as he followed and as he instructed, 
who would sacrifice a lamb and put the blood of the lamb over the door, then the angel of death would pass over that house. And if not, then the firstborn male of every home perished. And there was deep wailing, and it's such a significant, you can almost imagine the, 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 the difficulty of that night and, and kind of the emotions of that. But now, as they celebrate Passover, it was also connected to some feasts. As they celebrate Passover, the Jews, every single year, sacrifice a lamb. They go to Jerusalem where the lamb, a perfect lamb, a spotless, sinless lamb would be sacrificed. And there it would be an atonement for their sin and it would be a sacrifice or a substitute for their iniquity within their life. And this is what they would do every single year. So Jesus is making his way there. He's traveling there. Within about a week, he's going to experience and see that and we're gonna see that Passion Week. And so you can imagine that as Jesus is traveling and journeying, he's also traveling and journeying not only with his disciples, with maybe those that are curious about who Jesus is, but there's also on these roads many people that are making their way to Jerusalem the same way that Jesus and his disciples was. So you can imagine that there's probably a pretty big following, that there's a lot of excitement in the air. There's a lot of things that are kind of happening. If people are connecting to Jesus, maybe they've heard about him, but maybe on their road and in their journey and on their travels, they're seeing him for the first time. And what we're going to see today is a specific miracle that I think is absolutely beautiful. And for us today, what it does is it explains and shows how we should actually respond to the gospel. To kind of give you the end before we even get there, we, we, by looking at this example today, it's only simply eight verses that we're going to be reading, and I promise to draw it out, all right? So we are going to talk about this, but I think there is such significance here that we can easily pass over. And I think that this, this blind man that we'll talk about today actually had better vision than most of the people in Israel. He had better vision than actually the people that were the religious elite and those that were trying to fit Jesus into their mold. He saw better than they did, even though he lacked physical sight. And so what's so amazing about this is because it highlights the one who is doing the healing. It highlights Jesus, not just Jesus of Nazareth, but Jesus, the son of David. And we're going to get into that in just a couple minutes. Uh, and here's what I want to do. I'm going to take it verse by verse. And like I said, we're going to kind of take it a little bit slow. We're going to be kind of working through these. Uh, specifically, verse 38. I I'm going to park on that for a good significant amount of time. Um, so stick with me. I promise we'll get around the barn. It's just going to take a little bit of time to get there. So if you have your Bibles, if you have an app, um, or if you're online, you can actually click on a Bible one of the features in our uh, online chat is that you can actually click on a Bible to your left if you're viewing from the online platform. But I encourage you to follow along in the Bible with me. We're going to be reading from Luke chapter 18. We're going to be reading from verse 35 through 43 today. And it says this. It says, As he drew near to Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the roadside begging. And so, as, also, I should say, as we start and jump into this, this is a text that you can find in three of the four different Gospels. So today, we are specifically reading from the book of Luke, but you can also find this in uh, Matthew, verses 20, 29 through 34, and then Mark 10, 46 through 52. So out of the four different Gospels, this is recorded three times. And it is important to note that there is some, uh, there's a few differences that happen in that, which I hope to kind of explain uh, in this way. As we read through Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they all repeat this story with a few differences. 
Matthew wrote of two men. So as you read that, Matthew says that there was two men that were there. Mark and Luke both speak of only one. Mark, actually, an interesting note there, it says, Mark includes the name of the blind man, which was Bartimaeus. Now, Bartimaeus is a little bit weird of a name, so today we're going to call him Barty, okay? So we're going to call him Blind Barty because it's a little bit of fun, and it's just going to be a lot easier to say than having to pause and say Bartimaeus, that full name, every time. So Blind Barty is there, and Mark actually records that. And continuing on, it says... Uh, <laughs> Excuse me. Most likely, the, there were probably two men that were there, and it's it's uh, most likely that Bartimaeus was probably the more noticeable of the two. So, if there was two men, why is Bartimaeus or, or blind Barty? Why is he the one specifically mentioned? Well, he was maybe either the more vocal one, maybe he was a little bit more significant later on in the church. He was the more maybe well known, maybe his family was known. But specifically, it's not necessarily about this person, but about their. Response and what Jesus does. And so that's why they're there. It also says Matthew and Mark said that the men, uh, yeah, the men were healed when Jesus left Jericho, but Luke said that the healing occurred when Jesus approached Jericho. And most likely this can be explained by, like I just mentioned a little bit before this, there was two Jerichos. There was the old Jericho and then the new Jericho. So basically it's uh, the old city and the new one. Jesus was leaving old Jericho, which would have been Matthew and Mark's um, call, and then also he was approaching the new Jericho, which is what Luke records when this miracle uh, uh, occurs. So here's what I want you to do really quick, okay? I want you to imagine what would happen or what it would be like for you to just out of nowhere, maybe tomorrow morning, if you woke up and you lost your ability to see. I want you to imagine what that impact would be like. At first, I did think it would be fun to bring somebody up here on stage, put them in a blindfold, and then have them find things on stage. But then I thought, I probably won't get a volunteer for that. And, uh, and then also I thought, maybe I should be careful. This stage has claimed, and there's been some accidents off of this stage, so I felt like that was probably a bad idea. But I want you to just kind of use your imagination. What would happen, and what would your life look like? What would be the significance if you all of a sudden were to lose your sight? Now, for Barty, we don't really know if he actually was born blind or if he became blind. Either one of those are possibilities. I don't think that we have to spend much time thinking about it, but think about the impact of what would happen if you no longer had sight. How would that impact, let's start with your independence. How would that impact um, your ability to travel? How would that impact your opportunities to go to new places and locations? How would that impact your job or your way to be able to provide for your family? See, if you're anything like me, what happens is you tend to not think about things until you don't have them, right? Like, or like for an example, for me, uh, you know, I, I've severely sprained my ankle a couple of different times, and on a normal day, I do not think about my ankle at all singular, plural, ankles, I don't think about them, until I've injured myself and I need crutches and it hurts. Then I'm thinking about my ankle all the day long until it gets better and it's restored and then I'm back to normal, right? Like this is just how we tend to be as a people. We don't think about things that we don't have. We just kind of maybe complain or, and I'm not trying to put us down, but we, we notice the things that are inconvenient for us. 
for car, another example is that uh, over the summer, it was July, I went to a French church in Virginia uh, to speak there, and on our way to Virginia, our air conditioner in my wife's vehicle died, the fan died, and it was one of the hottest weekends like of the year, like over 100 degrees. And I remember complaining so much on the ride back about that air conditioning, right? Like, I was so mad, but I never stopped to think and go, well, what would be worse, if the air conditioner dies or I got stranded in Virginia? Like, out of those two, which one would you choose? Because I would choose the broken air conditioner. And I think that this is similar to us as we think about this, this healing. For us, we can gloss over this story and we can look at this and go, okay, there was a blind guy. But think about the impact that it would have on someone. Think about the impact it would have on you and your family's life. Think about how you would provide for your family. And so here is this man that because most of the jobs were physical labor in that time and in that day, he's resorted to begging. This is probably the best case scenario that he could actually be supported by people that pass by on the road. This is his best opportunity to be able to provide for himself. And who knows if there's even a family that uh, a bunch of little blind bodies that are running around at home right? Like, this is his best opportunity. And it's easy for us to just kind of pass over that. But I really want you to imagine what it was like to be this man. Imagine that you had this, this inconvenience, this difficulty, this handicap, this challenge of actually being blind and figuring out how to live life. We're a common sight in most towns. Uh, and I, I kind of already alluded to this, but because most occupations of that day required physical labor, anyone with a crippling disease or disability was at a severe disadvantage and was usually forced to beg. Beggars often waited along the roads near cities because that was where they were able to contact most, uh, the most amount of people. Medical help was not available for these problems, and people tended to ignore their obligation to care for the needy, which was recorded in Leviticus chapter 25. Thus, beggars had little hope of their escape, of escaping their degrading way of life. It would be a safe assumption to assume that there would be a numerous amount of beggars, specifically outside of Jericho. As Herod rebuilt Jericho, he actually rebuilt it kind of as his winter palace. And he, let me read this so I get it right. He had rebuilt it, um, the great city as his winter palace, and Jericho was a popular, wealthy resort city with a good climate. So it's not far from the Jordan River, and again, about 18 miles northeast of Jerusalem, Jericho was one of the wealthiest cities of Judea, so you can imagine that beggars were probably a normal sight. Probably unwelcome, but a normal sight. And so these beggars have, have stacked up against the road looking for money, and then we get to verse 36. Verses 36 and 37 aren't all that amazing, right? There's not all that much information. There's not even all that much to talk about. But verse 36 says this, And hearing a crowd going by, he inquired what this meant, right? Like, if you have children, or in my case, if you have dogs, if you hear a loud, suspicious noise in the other room, what do you usually go do, right? Like, I don't think many of us sit back and they go, oh, I'm sure they're fine. Usually, if you've got kids or maybe just a clumsy or a weird animal that gets into things like my dog does, you get up, you investigate what's going on, right? Like, and if you're a kid and you've ever experienced that, what you know is that if you have just done something, you've got between 10 and 60 seconds to figure out either a good story, to put things back, or to, to like figure out how to fix it, right? Like, 
there's a couple things that are, that are happening in there. And so uh, as I was thinking through this, like if you hear something suspicious in the other room, you go to investigate, right? It made me think of a time where I was, uh, as I was growing up, I was, a, I was always big for my age. Um, I always like uh, kind of broke stuff, not intentionally, but I just found a way of breaking things. I, I kind of was like, hey, what's, what's that expression? Like I hadn't grown into my spots yet or, or whatever. Like I was still kind of growing up, still kind of figuring out how to not be so awkward or clumsy in my body, but I broke things all the time. And I was very aware of that, like, 10 to, to 60 seconds you have when you break something or a loud sound happens, you've got to figure out what to do. So I got really good at figuring out what to do in those 10 to 60 seconds, all right? And I'm going to tell you one time, and mom, dad, I think I've told you this, and if not, I'm sorry. There's this one time where I, I don't know wh why or what possessed me. I don't know how old I was. I was probably in my early teens, and, and I was heading up to uh, my upstairs. My mom's like in the kitchen. I went upstairs. I think I had to like put laundry away or something like that, um, which as a guy, for the record, putting laundry away, I don't, I don't really believe in. Like, I'm just going to wear it again. So I would live out of like a hamper if my wife allowed me to. So I just don't get the point of actually folding and putting away clothes because I'm just going to wear it again, but whatever. So I was like walking up there and I don't know what possessed me, but I walk into my parents' room and I decide that I am going to like jump on my parents' bed. And I'm not saying like just one little jump. I mean like full out Superman onto this bed. And I do that and guess what happens? It breaks in half. I don't even know how I did it, but I broke it in half. My mom, who's in the kitchen, hears this loud sound and goes, what was that? And this is, this is the timer starts the second you hear that, right? Like, it was like one, two, and I am panicked. Like, I just broke my parents' bed. Like, how do I explain that I was doing a full Superman, I had full extension, and I broke their bed? So I, like, at this point, like, my mom calls my name again, and I'm still thinking. Like, I haven't said anything. I'm just staying quiet. Like, maybe she won't notice anything. Nope, that's not true. She's definitely going to notice when she walks in here. So I, like, don't say anything. And then the, what happens when your parents or your mom or your dad is upset at you, they use your full name, right? Like, you know it turns serious once it's like, it goes from Ben to Benjamin. In my house, it was like, oh, no, I'm really in trouble. So she calls my name, and I go, yeah. She goes, what happened? And I go, I don't know. <laughs> so she comes up the steps and I'm hearing her coming closer and closer. And I don't know why I am not endorsing this. I'm not proud of it. But I made up a story that I had slipped on a sock and that I had fell onto the bed. And because I had slipped on the sock, and honestly, I can't remember if I planted a sock there. Like, see, you shouldn't have socks on the floor. That's bad. Like, I don't know if I planted a sock or if there was one there. And I remember my mom, like, completely not believing it, but also trusting me, going, so you slipped on a sock and you fell into the bed. Uh-huh. That I felt so guilty. It was like three days before my parents could get a bed, so they're like sleeping on the couch or recliner. I'm pretty sure that I have owned up to that uh, that lie to my parents, and if not, sorry, mom and dad. I don't think you watch these messages, and you can just skip this week. Uh, anyway, 
So I just was thinking, like, for blind Barty, he hears this commotion, right? He, he can't see what's going on, so he does the natural, normal thing, going, hey, what's happening? What's going on? And in my mind, what I'm very curious about is if blind Barty is excited about the noise that he hears or if he's anxious or nervous. Like, I think my mom was probably a little bit nervous when she heard that loud crash and then asks me what happens, and I don't really have an answer. But I wonder for Barty, maybe it's possible. I don't know. I, this isn't in Scripture. This is me and kind of reading into it. Maybe Barty was hoping that he would be able to meet this Jesus that he's heard about. Maybe he was hoping for this encounter where if he had this opportunity to see Jesus, maybe his life could be changed forever. I don't know. This is complete speculation. But he hears something. He goes, what's going on? And verse 37 says this. says, they told him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. And here's what I think is, again, verse 36 and 37, not much going on. Blind Barty goes, hey, what's that noise? They go, hey, Jesus of Nazareth is coming. But what is so interesting is when you look at verse 37 compared to verse 38, there's two different names that are told or spoken about of the person of Jesus. We have Jesus of Nazareth, and what we'll see in just a moment is Jesus, son of David. And names were very important in that culture, in that community, and in that time. A name was so much more than just a name. A name had the ability to explain where somebody was from, what their title, their position was, what they did, who they were uh, in covenant relationship with, who their family line was. A name was something that was so much more important. And names were usually picked, or you could even be renamed in Bible times, depending on things that you would walk through. And we can see that in the Old Testament, how some people were renamed after seasons or things, encounters with God. And so names were a significant part of that culture. And a name said something about who that person was. And I want you to see the difference between these two names today. So we're going to park on verse 38 for a while. But this is what happens. Again, what's going on? Hey, Jesus of Nazareth is coming. The crowd or this person, I'm not sure. It doesn't really say who. It just says they told him. So somebody says, hey, Jesus of Nazareth, of Nazareth is coming. And Jesus is just some person with this name. Uh, Jesus is just some guy from Nazareth. And, and there's been a lot of talk about who he is. And there's been a lot of kind of explaining about how he's doing miracles. And, and there's a lot of things that are happening. There's a lot of buzz around this Jesus of Nazareth. But he is coming through. And so as we look at this, verse 38 then changes the way that we see this. Verse 38. So he was just told, Jesus of Nazareth. Who's coming? Jesus of Nazareth. Verse 38 says, And he cried out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. I think what is so amazing here is that he actually recognizes Jesus. And there is some level of thought and understanding that goes into this title that he now declares Jesus as. That he has to recognize and identify that it's not just Jesus of Nazareth like he's just been told, but this is Jesus, the son of David. And in saying the son of David, it implied so much that was going on. But I wonder whoever told him this was like, no, it's Jesus of Nazareth, not Jesus, son of David. I wonder if they knew or were aware because generally speaking, people that were in that blind group were considered non-religious because they couldn't actually read the Torah. 
So they wouldn't have been considered to be religious folk because they haven't been able to read and to understand it unless they were around somebody that was talking about it in an in, in oral sense where they were talking and explaining and communicating. So on some level, there's some education that this blind man has received. And he's going, no, 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 no. It's not just Jesus of Nazareth. It's Jesus, the son of David. The name changed completely from verses 37 to verses 38. I really want you to see the significance of this. And so I want to look at some Old Testament scriptures. I want to look even back in Luke. The crowd saw Jesus coming as some guy from Nazareth who was getting lots of attention. But this blind man could actually see who Jesus was better than most of Israel. Barty did see, uh, see Jesus as a guy from Nazareth. He didn't see Jesus as just a guy from Nazareth, but as the son of David, the rightful king from David's line. The true Messiah, this is a statement that this man was the king that was in the line of David, and he was the true Messiah of Israel. This is the one that the Jews were waiting for. This is the king of kings and ultimately the Lord of lords, which in a Roman empire would be dangerous to speak out that he is the king, that he is the line in the line of David. Like David was a king, this man is not just a man from Nazareth. This man is a king. He is the Messiah, the chosen one, the one that Jews have been waiting for for hundreds of years. He has come to establish his kingdom. He recognizes that, that the title of son of David was a designation for the true Messiah. The Bible Knowledge Commentary says this. It says, when he was told it was Jesus of Nazareth, he immediately realized that the Messiah was there for, for his words, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me, presupposed that he knew Jesus is the Messiah. Great symbolic value here in Luke's account. The man was a beggar sitting by the side of the road waiting for something to happen. He was blind and could do nothing to improve his condition. The Messiah came through town as he walked through many towns, and immediately the blind man recognized him as the Messiah, the one who could save him from his blindness. And I wonder if, if Barty here was a little bit starstruck, right? Like a little bit excited going, man, as you read the story, I, I feel like as I spent more time studying it and studying it, it's this such a beautiful picture of how we should respond to Jesus. And I can't help but wonder, was Barty excited? Like this is the moment that he had been hoping for. Like, this is the moment that maybe from a child, I'm speculating here, but maybe from a child, he's dreamed and wished and hoped that he could just simply see. And now, all of a sudden, when he hears that Jesus of Nazareth is here, he goes, no, 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 that is the true and rightful king, and I now have the opportunity to possibly be healed. I can imagine this excitement, almost this starstruck, also going, man, this is the Messiah, this is the chosen one. Not only will I be able to receive physical healing, but there's also something else there that's drawing me in. A poor blind beggar called to see that Jesus was the Messiah, while the religious leaders who saw his miracles were blinded to his, his identity and refused to recognize him as the Messiah. The blind man here sees by faith. He hears that it's Jesus of Nazareth, and he sees the Messiah before he physically can see. And Luke does a very uh, significant job. Like Luke is intentionally, in the first 
uh, three chapters of the book of Luke, Luke is doing an intentional job of trying to connect the fact that Jesus is connected and born in the line of David. So as we read through Luke chapter 1, 2, and 3, there's three specific references, and then in chapter 3, there's the genealogy of Jesus that goes all the way back from Joseph, like Joseph, and then all the way back to Adam. And Luke is making a significant point in trying to make the connection that Jesus is in the line of King David. In chapter 1, 30 through 31, Luke specifically records the angel's words to Mary as she, gives, as she will give birth to a child who will be named Jesus, and that he would uh, be given the throne of his father David and that his kingdom would reign forever. In chapter 2, verses 4 and 5, Luke records what, uh, what uh, uh, this point makes it a point to say that Joseph was from the town of Nazareth in Galilee, that he went from there to Judea, to the city of David, because he was from the house and the lineage of David. And then, like I said, in chapter 3, he shows the record of the entire family. He records the entire lineage all the way back to Adam, all the way back to creation. He is showing that Jesus is of the line of David. And I even love in Luke chapter 3, in verse 23, uh, this is what Luke says. He said, Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age, being the son, and then in parentheses in the book of Luke, it says, as was supposed of Joseph, the son of Hela, Heli. It's interesting that he's going, hey, it's supposedly, it's kind of Joseph's kid, but not really his kid because it's from the Father in heaven. So it's it's a very important connection here that he's trying to make. And why is Luke trying to make a connection here? Why is he trying to show the line of David? It's because he's trying to connect all of the Old Testament prophecies to the fact that there would be a king from the line of David that would sit on the throne forever. Luke is trying to paint a very vivid picture of going, this king that they have longed for, that they have waited for, this king is Jesus. This king is the true Messiah. And there's, uh, as you read through the Old Testament, there is a, a, a Davidic covenant that God makes with David, which is what I've been talking about, where God promises that David would always have a heir, or he would have a, uh, an heir that would sit on the throne forever, that his line would be established forever. And so we can see that in 1 Samuel chapter 7, verses 8 through 16. We can see it reaffirmed in Psalms 87, 3 through 4. It says, uh, You have said, I have made a covenant with my chosen one. I have sworn to David, my servant. I will establish your offspring forever and build your throne for all generations. In Jeremiah 23, 5 through 6, here's a different prophet that says and talks about the same thing. He says, The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, a king who will reign wisely and do what is just and right in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved, and Israel will live in safety. This is the name by which he will be called, the Lord, our righteous Savior. And then in Isaiah 11, 1 through 4, there's another, uh, there's another prophet by the name of Isaiah here, and he's actually talking about David's father, who was named Jesse. He says this, it says, A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots a branch will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and of might, the spirit of knowledge with his, uh, the spirit of knowledge and fear of the Lord. 
verses 3 and 4, I want you to think through this through the lens of everything that we've been talking about Jesus' road trip. 3 and 4 says this, And he will delight in the fear of the Lord. He will not judge by what he sees with his eyes or decide by what he hears with his ears. But with righteousness, he will judge the needy. With justice, he will give decisions for the poor of the earth. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and the breath of his lips. He will slay the wicked. There has been so much in Luke's gospel. There's been so much bringing up of, of Jesus came for the outcast. He came for the poor and for the needy. He is building up the outcasts of that society. But also there's all this tension with the religious elite, right? There's a lot of turmoil that's been happening. And as I read through this passage, can you not see almost a direct connection from what Luke is reporting in his gospel to what the prophets have talked about in Isaiah? What the prophets have talked and spoke about long ago, there's a direct connection. And when Barty, this blind man, hears that Jesus of Nazareth is coming, he goes, no, 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 no. Jesus, the son of David, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, the, the one that is coming that is the true Messiah that has come to establish his throne forever, that is who is showing up on this day. That is the two different names that we see in this passage. The crowds recognize him as Jesus from Nazareth, but blind Barty here recognizes him Jesus, son of David, the true Messiah. And this is everything, like I said, in verse, uh, chapter 11 of Isaiah, it seems like this is everything that Luke has been talking about. This declaration of Jesus as the son of David wasn't just the cry of a blind man wanting healing. It was a declaration that Jesus Christ was the long-awaited Messiah. That one of the prophet, the one that the prophets had foretold of, and the, ones that, the one that Jews longed for. This man wasn't just a man, but a king of kings and the Lord of lords. And while blind Barty may have not had physical sight, his spiritual vision was better than 2020 because he heard and saw the Messiah. For us, the practical application in this becomes, are we like this man? When we see Jesus, who do we see Jesus as? Do we see Jesus as just some guy that did a bunch of miracles and lived long ago, or do we see him as the true Messiah? Do we see him as the king of kings, someone who is worthy to be followed, somebody who's worthy to, to place our trust and our hope in him? How do we see Jesus? Do we see him like the crowds, or do we see him like this blind man? I think that this is something, again, that Luke constantly brings up. He constantly brings up this tension of almost asking that question, who do you say that Jesus is? Because Luke is writing in such a way that you would be confronted with having to choose. He's either Lord or he's not. And so Luke is doing this once again. So for us, who do we say that Jesus is? For you individually, it doesn't mean that you don't have doubts and questions, but who do you actually view Jesus as? Is he just a guy from Nazareth that does fun magic tricks? Or is he the savior of the world that we can place our faith and our hope in? I think that's a question for us to work through. Luke never stops making the person of Jesus the issue of his gospel. All of the blessings that he notes revolve around the choice of deciding who he is. Luke tells the story gradually, but virtually every passage asks the same question about him. Those who know him already are, are reassured about him, but those who do not know him are called to recognize him. This passage asks the question in visual terms, do you see who Jesus is or are you blind? Blindness becomes sight when we turn to him. And so verse 39 continues on, it says this, 
Verse 39, and those who were in, in front rebuked him. So again, here, Barty goes, hey, what's that noise? They say, it's Jesus of Nazareth coming. He's, and he starts to cry out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. So now they go, and those who were in front rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. Again, I had already mentioned this, but blind people were socially powerless, right? They were looked at as nobodies. People didn't really care about them. They didn't really want to, to help them, and they didn't want to live by what Leviticus had talked about and showing them favor and honor. They just thought that they weren't worth their time. And so as, as this blind man starts to call out to Jesus, they go, Jesus doesn't have time for you. Similar to what we see the disciples do earlier in this chapter, right? In 18, the little children come, and the disciples are going, no, 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 no. Don't bring your children to Jesus. And Jesus goes, no, let them come. And now the crowds are doing the same thing. The crowds are going, Jesus doesn't have time for you, blind Barty. Like, you, you're insignificant. You don't matter. Just be quiet. Stay over here. Just ask the next group of people for money. Like, dismissive of him. And again, they considered them non-religious and outcasts. The crowds and the followers of Jesus see his loud pleas as an intrusion. It's possible that even the disciples, in their excitement, maybe they're thinking that Jesus, as he's making his way to Jerusalem, this is kind of his, his royal uh, like parade into the city, right? Like, don't interrupt the procession because this is Jesus' parade. Like, in their excitement and in their zeal and in them trying to make Jesus fit the mold of what they thought he would do, they're going, no, 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 Jesus doesn't have time for the poor, for children. He, just, just don't worry, just... Here's what Jesus has time for. We're doing a royal procession. And so Jesus stops, and he hears this man. I wonder if he even sees the faith. The Bible background commentary says this. Except for what they, they learned from listening to others recite, blind people in that time were illiterate in the law. Braille had not yet been invented, so they could not read. There were thus, uh, they were thus not respected as religious persons, although they were protected under the law of Moses. They were socially powerless, and Luke's followers view this blind man's loud pleas as an intrusion, the way that they had viewed children in Luke 15. The disciples may have viewed Jesus' final journey to Jerusalem as a royal procession, and it was foolhardy and impudent to interrupt a royal procession. And what I love is the faith of this blind man that says, as he's rebuked and says, hey, keep quiet, he cries out all the more. Like, again, this is why I think that maybe he was starstruck going, dude, are you kidding me? It's the savior of the world. There is no way that I'm going to let him walk by and not be able to have an opportunity to speak to him. So you will not get me to be silent. If you think I'm crazy, I think you're crazy. I just wonder and look at this man's faith that goes, no, 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 no. It's not just Jesus of Nazareth. It is the King of kings. It is the Lord of lords. It is the one true Messiah. And he is pursuing Jesus with everything that he has. He wants Jesus' attention. He desires an audience with the Messiah. He has nothing to lose here. What I think is so beautiful is that he's going, I've got nothing to lose. I'm already scorned and despised, considered an outcast, so what are you going to do to me? You already think I'm weird, so I'm going to just live into that weirdness. I'm going to pursue after what God has for me. I wonder what his thoughts were in that. Verses 41 and 40, or excuse me, 40 and 41, it says this. It says, And Jesus stopped and commanded him to be brought to him. And when he came near, he asked him, What do you, uh, 
uh, what do you want me to do for you? And he said, Lord, let me recover my sight. Beautiful that Jesus here stops. That on his way, as he's traveling, as he's going, as he's got the cross on his mind, that he's, he could be preoccupied and, and just kind of thinking about what is to come. In, about, in around a week, he's going to suffer and die one of the worst deaths ever imaginable. Yet he still has time to pause. To hear this cry, the cry of this blind man. To see his faith and to respond. The life application uh, concise New Testament commentary says this. In Jesus' determined movement towards Jerusalem, he had time to serve someone in need. Any normal hum human being uh, heading towards certain death would be extremely preoccupied and probably not uh, necessarily in the mood to help others. But Jesus did not reject this man like the crowds had done. He ordered that the man be brought to him and asked him to, the, uh, to voice his request. The man replied without hesitation, I want to see. How many times in his life had he voiced that desire? Probably thousands. But here, he stood before the one person in the universe who could actually make his desires a reality. And he would not have asked if he had not believed that he could do it. And I wonder here if Jesus asks, what, uh, asks Bartimaeus or asks blind Barty what he wants in order to draw out his faith a little bit more. Like, because I, I wonder if Jesus sees his faith, he hears his faith, he hears his determination, and he calls him over, and maybe he's just for the sake of the crowds, maybe even for the sake of us, that he is drawing out this man's faith, asking him what he wants, and without hesitation, man, Bartimaeus goes, I want to see. He knows that he stands before the one that can do this, and so without Without hesitation, with true faith and trust, he says, I want to see. And I think that this is an absolute beauti beautiful picture of faith. He had absolute faith and resolve that Jesus was the source of his healing and his salvation. And for us, that question then relates to us. As we look at Jesus, do we recognize him as Messiah? Do we recognize him as Lord and Savior? And then the second question is, do we put our faith and trust in him? How do you view Jesus? And then what do you do with the way that you view Jesus? Do you place your faith and your trust in him? Do you have absolute faith and trust that Jesus is the source of our spiritual healing and salvation? And what I don't want to do is minimize any doubts or questions that, that people might have, right? Like, I, I think that faith, doubt, and questions can all reside in the same place. Because even in this, like, did Marty know the exact plan that Jesus had? Did he know that in about a week he was going to suffer and die? Probably not. But he recognized him as the Messiah. If it was hidden from the disciples, it's probably hidden from, from Barty here, too, that he doesn't know what the plan that God has is. And for us, we may struggle not understanding the plan, but the question is, is where do we place our faith and our trust? Do we recognize as Jesus as Messiah? Or is he just some guy that did a bunch of things and we hear about once a week on Sunday? It, it, do we model our life around him and do we follow him or do we choose to just kind of pay attention once in a while because, well, he, he was a good guy and he did good things? So for us, the question becomes, do you have absolute faith and trust? It doesn't mean that you're without any doubts or questions. I think that the church should be a place where you wrestle through that, where if you do have doubts, you can say, Lord, help me in my doubt. Help me in my not understanding. But you can walk through and experience all that God has for you. Continuing on, we've got just two verses left, and 
uh, it says this, 1842, it says, and Jesus said to him, recover your sight, your faith has made you well. Recover your sight, your faith has made you well. In stating his desire to see, the man was confident that Jesus, the Messiah, had the power to heal him. When Jesus said that your faith has, made, has healed you, he was not saying that the man's faith possessed some power. The man had faith in the Messiah, and it was the Messiah's power that healed him. In the same way, if the nation had faith in the Messiah, their faith in Jesus would have healed them from their spiritual blindness. Jesus recognized this man had faith, and his faith was in the Messiah. It wasn't just in this positive attitude or this positive outlook or just kind of this feeling good. He was placing his faith in the object and the person of Jesus Christ. So for us, where do we place our faith? Do we trust God enough in, in everything that we would place our faith and our trust in him? Luke's point was to not simply have faith in general terms, but to place your faith in Jesus Christ. To place your faith in the one true Messiah, the Son of David, the King of kings, and the Lord of lords. The last verse says, if the worship team wants to go ahead and come on out, verse 1843 says this, and immediately he recovered his sight and followed him, glorifying God, and all the people, when they saw it, gave praise to God. This man has incredible faith. He sees Jesus as the Messiah. Not only that, but he chooses to place his faith and his trust in him. And then what happens is as he is healed, he chooses to follow Jesus. This is a picture of what every believer should be doing. If you claim to be a, a disciple of Jesus Christ, then this is the ultimate example that we would see Christ for who he is, that we would place our faith and our trust in him, and that we would follow him wherever he went. Blind Barty's life was changed forever to the point that he can't be called Blind Barty anymore. Now he's just Barty or Bartimaeus. He, his life was impacted in that moment, not just because he received sight, but because he also had this spiritual awakening that he now got the opportunity to walk with the Messiah. He now got to be in fellowship, in communion with the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. I think that this is such a beautiful picture of faith. I think this is such a beautiful illustration of how we should live our lives every single day by those things that we've talked about. Bartimaeus pictured discipleship clearly. He recognized his inability, trusted Jesus as the one to give him God's precious mercy and so that he could see clearly, and then he began to follow Jesus. He'd immediately joined the crowd of followers, staying with Jesus and praising God. He had a new purpose, and life now looked different. He now walked with Jesus. It is possible, I, I kind of already mentioned this, it is possible that the reason why the, the Gospel of Mark mentions the name Bartimaeus is because it's possible that in that early church, it's possible that he was maybe a prominent figure. We're not entirely sure. That's a bit speculation on, on some commentator's thoughts, but it's possible that he was this person that had this encounter and continued to follow Jesus long after his death and his resurrection. We don't really know historically, or at least in my studies, I couldn't find uh, what or how we, you know, what happens to this man after he has this incredible encounter and after he chooses to follow Jesus. But either way, Luke is here again comparing. Here's the opportunity to look at 18 and say, here's a rich young ruler who had everything and missed Jesus. And here's this blind beggar who had nothing. 
and he saw Jesus as the true Messiah. So this morning as we end out, we have a song that I absolutely love that, that asks that God would give us faith. And I would ask you to go ahead and stand if you're with us in the room. If you're outside, you're welcome to join us by standing. Or if you're online, you're welcome to, to sing with us. But as we sing this song, I hope that this isn't just our, our closing song, but this would be the cry of our heart that we would receive the faith that God has for us. Please join us in this.
So this week, the application is exactly what we've been talking about. Who is Jesus to you? Do you see him as Jesus of Nazareth, or do you see him as the Messiah? Do you see him as the Son of David? And then when you see him, understand and recognize that you can place your faith and your trust in him. It doesn't mean that it's without doubt. It doesn't mean that you don't have questions, but that you can choose faith and trust over anything that would come into your life. And then the last thing that we see is to follow just like Bartimaeus did. Choose to follow in whatever he calls you to do. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for this day. I thank you for each and every single person that is here. Father, I pray that as we go from this time and as we go from this place, that your spirit would go with us, Lord, that you would encourage us, that you would challenge us, that you would stretch us and grow us into the disciples that you've called us to be. I thank you for this example that we get to read in scripture, and I pray that we would respond in the same way. Lord, that we would do exactly what Bartimaeus did, that we would see you as Lord and Savior, place our trust in you and follow you. Lord, thank you for this time. Please be with us, whether we're in person, online, or in the parking lot. Would you be glorified in everything that we say and do? In Jesus' name, amen. Have a great week, everyone.